Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Today, you'll learn about the benefits of shading rooftop gardens with solar panels, caffeine's dark secrets, and how the first image from the James Webb telescope promises a great run for Hubble's successor. Without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity. Callie, I am super excited. It's almost time to start filling my vegetable planters. Oh, I love this time of year. There is nothing better than bringing in fresh veggies. Saves money, saves time going to the grocery store. I love to do it and to share them. But what if I told you that your vegetable garden might not just be the solution for the occasional afternoon hunger pang, that it can have a mutually beneficial relationship with clean energy technology and help fight against rising urban temperatures? You're talking about using cucumbers to get us out of a pickle? (laughs) Yeah. Researchers are now exploring the benefits of using rooftops to simultaneously harvest crops and electricity. The method is called agrivoltaics. You've got the rooftop garden. Ah, I've heard of this. Wouldn't that be a green rooftop, those buildings covered in plants? It's similar, but then you put solar panels up above it. The solar panels provide some well-needed shade. Shade. I thought plants love the sun. And where can you get more of it than on the roof? Well, that's just it. There might be too much sun. Most plants can't handle it. So in a normal rooftop garden setting, you have to be exceptionally careful about which varieties you choose. When the plants get more sun than they can handle, they stop photosynthesis and instead start doing something called photorespiration. That's where they break down oxygen rather than carbon dioxide. I didn't even know they could do that. It's an inefficient process that slows down their growth. On top of that, the panels help block some of the wind. Roofs are often windy places. Because of all this, most green roof designers choose hardy, sun-loving succulents. Well, what do the other piggy, non-prickly plants look like? If you think of a forest, big trees often shelter smaller plants on the ground from strong winds and provide intermittent shade. And it turns out most plants prefer a bit of shade. The growth of leafy greens increases, and pepper plants can triple their production with some shade. So then how do we get sun and shade and wind protection? Agrivoltaics. If you plant gardens and farms beneath rooftop solar panels, then you get all in one. And having plants beneath them doesn't mess with the solar panels at all? Believe it or not, it can actually make the panels work more efficiently. The plants respirate and sort of sweat. They release water vapor that rises and cools down the solar panels. And cool panels are better than hot ones? Yeah, hot solar panels are less efficient at creating energy, so the relationship really is symbiotic. Some researchers are even looking at using semi-transparent solar panels that would let some light through. Great for plants that prefer less sunlight, but don't want total shade either. So can I start growing plants and power on my roof? What do I need? Uh, It might be tough. The roofs need to be flat, and it needs to be strong enough to support the weight of panels, planters, plants, and a lot of dirt. And it also needs to be highly waterproof. You don't want plant water seeping into your home. That's actually a lot of requirements. It totally is, which is why researchers are finding that it makes more sense to do agrivoltaics on new buildings with strong roofs rather than trying to retrofit existing buildings. They're even suggesting that governments subsidize these roofs as they decrease greenhouse gas production from food transport, they generate green power, and they lower urban temperature. I haven't heard somebody talk about temperature this much since Sean Paul, but (laughs) why would we want to lower urban temperatures? Well, cities are filling up and they're heating up. Basically, all that man-made stuff, concrete, glass, working machines, and air conditioners. Cities can be about 20 degrees hotter than the surrounding rural areas. If you shade the buildings with their own green roofs, it reduces the effect. The plants use the energy of the sun instead of spitting it back out into the city. 
So the real question, the meat and potatoes of the issue, if you will, is how much food can we actually produce under these panels? Researchers found that in a city like Denver, using agrivoltaics could produce as much as 5,000 pounds of food per acre. Holy guacamole. <laughs> well, avocados grow on trees, so I don't know if they're going to be the first up. But you're not wrong. There's lots of research to go, but agrivoltaics is a promising new field. I'm all on board. Uh, if there's two things I love, it's a good salad and some green energy. Why not mix them together and throw in some more comfortable cities? Solar salad's coming right up. Now I just want avocados. Nate, you don't drink coffee, do you? You know, I actually don't, no. Yeah, you're better than me. I need that stuff every morning. Well, I just use my zest for life and love of science to get me going in the morning. <laughs> well, that's good because research is showing that the world's addiction to caffeine might be making us less productive and may be the cause of the sleepiness many of us consume caffeine to combat. Now, that's not to say it doesn't have scientifically proven positive effects as well, but it's not all an upside. See, I've never been a coffee drinker, but I have always wondered, what exactly does it feel like? I love it. Uh, not only is it a nice morning ritual, but it also helps me feel awake, more alert, and more focused on the tasks at hand. Studies have found that people who consume caffeine can better remember information, improve their physical performance, increase their focus, fend off sleepiness, and even decrease the risk of depression. See, all of that sounds pretty incredible. So those benefits are most recognizable in people who don't normally consume caffeine. That's because the more you drink caffeine, the more you become accustomed to its effects. You can even develop a chemical dependency. Right. Yeah, I've heard of caffeine withdrawal. It's similar to withdrawal from other addictive chemicals. Now, it's important to note that we're talking about if you're drinking more than 400 milligrams of caffeine a day, more than four cups of caffeinated coffee. The withdrawal from that kind of thing can give you headaches, fatigue, and even more insidious, stress, decreased motivation and confidence, and even dysphoria. Dysphoria? Sounds like the new show on HBO No. But what is caffeine doing in the brain? <laughs> caffeine doesn't actually give us more energy. It just helps us feel less tired. A chemical adenosine accumulates in our brain over the course of the day. It makes us gradually feel tired and prepares us to go to bed at the end of the day. Caffeine blocks the uptake of adenosine in the brain, preventing us from feeling tired. That is, of course, until the caffeine is metabolized and all that adenosine floods back into the brain. Is caffeine one of those drugs we kind of evolved with? I know there is evidence of alcohol consumption in pre-human primates. Yeah, like they would find some fruit that fermented in the sun, naturally occurring alcohol. Yeah, exactly. Is it that old? Not even close. It's actually relatively new. Uh, coffee production popped up in East Africa around the 15th century and trade spread it across the Arabian Peninsula. Europe got its first coffee shop in 1629 in Venice. England got its first in 1650, but it didn't take long for these numbers to skyrocket. Coffee houses became places not just for a morning buzz, but for the exchange of ideas. Michael Pollan, author of Caffeine, even posited that the Industrial Revolution likely wouldn't have happened without caffeine. Once we had indoor lighting, we still had to stay up to work. Coffee allowed us to work through the night and focus on the mundane and repetitive tasks that machinery required. If we are supposed to feel tired at night and then don't, that can't be good for our body's natural rhythm. When researchers started looking at the main reason most people drink coffee, to wake up or to stay awake, they found that our solution, caffeine, might actually be the biggest cause of the problem. Well, that doesn't sound helpful at all. <laughs> nope. Researchers found that the quarter life of caffeine, when 25% of it is still working in your body, is 12 hours. That means that 9 a.m. coffee is still keeping you awake, blocking adenosine uptake in your brain until 9 p.m. It could be a big source of insufficient and low-quality sleep. And that means you would, of course, wake up feeling tired and groggy. And reach for that cup of coffee to fix it. It's a perfect loop, making the problem, solving the problem, making the problem. In the in-between, we get insufficient sleep, which over the long term can be a big factor in developing Alzheimer's, strokes, heart failure, anxiety, and depression. 
Would you ever try quitting? I know I sleep pretty great. <laughs> Maybe. The Mayo Clinic has a few tips for limiting or eliminating caffeine intake. Figure out how much caffeine you take in a day. Read labels to make sure none is sneaking through unexpected places like health drinks, then gradually start cutting back. Try eliminating one caffeinated drink a day until you're off, or limit your caffeine intake afternoon. And if you're really trying to stay off the stuff, look for caffeine-free pain relievers, as many pain relief drugs actually include caffeine. It might not be easy, but if you can get better sleep, you might be a bit happier. Totally. And then I could get that real boost when I needed it. In the meantime, I still love my morning brew, and I'll just skip that second cup in the afternoon. You'll see. In no time at all, all you're going to need is a good science story to wake you right up. <laughs> well, you have to forgive me for the next few days. I have a feeling that cup of excitement is going to come with a splash of grouchiness. Okay, Nate, today I'm bringing our listeners an incredible update on the James Webb Space Telescope. That's awesome. What is it? NASA recently got the first test image from the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, for those who don't know, Webb is the new $10 billion telescope that launched at the end of last year, and the clarity blew their minds. It's way better than they expected. We're looking at 10 or 20 years of gorgeous photos that will help unravel the story of the origin of the universe. I have been so excited about this telescope. I'm a huge fan of Hubble, and I know this is a big step up. Absolutely. While Hubble orbits a few hundred miles from Earth's surface, the James Webb Telescope orbits the sun. It's 930,000 miles from Earth. That's over 115 times the diameter of the Earth away. Oh, dang. Well, remind me who James Webb is, that he gets his own name plaque out past the moon. <laughs> he was the former NASA administrator who led the Mercury and Gemini programs, as well as much of Apollo. And the telescope bearing his name is equally as ambitious as he was in his career. It uses 18 hexagonal beryllium mirrors calibrated to work as one. This huge complex mirror collects the light, reflects it to a second, much smaller mirror, which reflects it again towards the telescope's instruments. It has a diameter of 6.5 meters. Compare that to Hubble's single 2.4 meter mirror. How do you get the 18 mirrors to work as a single one? So that's what's so important about this first image. They won't use the image to make any new observations about the universe. Webb's got those nearly 20 mirrors, and now, because of this image, they know the images they get will work perfectly. The process is called fine phasing. They use this image to check every parameter of the mirror alignment. Okay, well, I guess that makes sense. Like one of those printer test sheets with a little of each color and all that. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Only in this case, the clarity they found means all the mirrors are properly adjusted within nanometers. The multiple mirrors are working in combination to create a single, supremely sharply focused image. Scientists say the focus is as sharp as the law of physics allow. They've achieved the diffraction-limited alignment of the telescope. I've heard of this. It's when you optimize light wavelength, lens power, and the distance to the objects you're looking at. It's like the perfect prescription glasses. Exactly. And that level of focus is far better than scientists even allowed themselves to hope for. So what is this going to allow us to do? Well, there's still a lot of work to go. Like, they've got to turn all the cool instruments on. Spectrographs and cameras so they can record the incredibly wide range of information Webb is equipped to gather. We can expect full high-res images and data later this summer. Webb can see stars and galaxies more than 100 times too faint for Hubble by looking at a wider range of wavelengths. Wow. So what fascinating things did we look at first? So that's actually pretty funny. The first image is a star that researchers say is, well, pretty boring. It's in the Milky Way, about 2,000 light years away. Scientists use a red filter to create a greater visual contrast between the star and the blackness of space beyond it. 
Uh, so it was just the lucky one to get chosen. Like when my business card got me a free week of sandwiches from one of those drawings. Yeah, some, something like that. Um, what really got the scientists excited was what they saw around the star, an array of beautiful distant stars and galaxies in the background. It kind of gives you an idea of just what we're going to be able to see over the lifespan of this telescope for the next 10 to 20 years. Will we be able to explore those background galaxies, bring them to the foreground? When the telescope is fully operational, scientists and researchers say we should be able to see stars and galaxies billions of light years away. This should give us light from a few hundred million years after the birth of our universe. It should wildly change and potentially expand our understanding of the birth of the universe and our place in it. Man, if all this optimism is coming from just the first mechanical images, then I can't wait to see what's to come when it's fully operational. Me either. And I am going to be bringing more updates when it is. Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. A new scientific field, agrivoltaics, may provide the solution to our urban food and electricity problems. Combining food plots and solar panels may increase the efficiency of both and help lower rising urban temperatures. Many of us rely on the caffeine from coffee and tea to increase our wakefulness and focus. Research is showing, though, that this solution to our problems might actually be the source of them. The first image from the James Webb Space Telescope is here, and it is spectacular. The clarity of the image is better than scientists and researchers allowed themselves to hope for, and suggests that the next 10 to 20 years will include unprecedented imagery of the depths of space. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Our Discovery executive producer is Christina Bavetta. Our Discovery coordinating producer is Krishna San Nicholas. This show is hosted by us, Callie Gade and Nate Bonham. Our showrunner is Matt Mayer. Our writers are James Lynch and Jordan Trout. Our researcher is Thomas Martin Messersmith. Sound design, audio engineering, and editing by Nick Carissimi. I'm Callie Gade. And I'm Nate Bonham. We'll see you next week.